0: Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, JB 3 I'm back after a little break. I took a week off to just reset, detach myself from social media a bit. Remember the things that are important to me, spending time with family, friends, catching up on things that I enjoy doing. I'm currently working on a grant right now for for my job, so that's taking up quite a bit of time. Uh, Between after and during work hours but you know how that goes i've got some thoughts on that too just just thinking out loud here for a quick second it's crazy to me that you have to write up a document in response to a document that says hey you're broke you need some money tell us why you need the money and as you're writing the document you realize like we've been broke for a while right we've been underfunded for a long time please help us and the money's only good for a certain amount of years and then it goes away And then you're still responsible for addressing these issues long term. But that's a bigger conversation for another day that I hope to one day get to. So just someone hold me accountable to that. Speaking of being held accountable, today's episode is going to be really good because it's featuring one of my accountability partners. And though Hayden may not agree per se because we've never signed any contracts or put anything on paper, In many ways, Hayden has called me in um, publicly and held me accountable to things that I said I wanted to do. And so if you follow me on Twitter for some time, you know, I said, I need a website. I want to build a website. I need someone to build a website for me. And I never got around to it. And so time went by. Hayden said, how's that website coming along? And there still was no website. Well, fast forward about two years from me saying that I do have a website. The link is actually in our bio if you ever check the links on the episode. But Hayden was really always behind the scenes supporting is just saying, hey, you know, put yourself out there. You'll hear in our conversation today kind of that playoff of each other when it comes to being held accountable. Today's episode really starts out with us talking about. LGBTQ health. Right. We're talking about discrimination. We're talking about bias and how that shows up in health outcomes. And when you see these differences in the way people are treated, you're likely to see differences in the health outcomes. And so that's important to help frame the conversation for today. And what it does is it really illuminates for us how there are these disturbing rates of healthcare discrimination because of bias because of sexism because of heterosexism and the ways that providers have been normalized and conditioned to have expectations about their patients and their clients now the beauty of today's conversation for me is the bridging of public health and mental health in a way that says hey what happens on the healthcare side of things and the public health side of things have impact on the behavioral health and mental health side of things. And so today's episode is the perfect combination, the perfect storm of bringing together those two facets of, of individuals and how their health shows up between. So I've talked quite a bit. I'm excited to introduce you all to Hayden Dawes. Hayden, please let the
1: people know all about you. Yeah, James, I'm so excited to be here on this podcast. I've been following it for a while, and I'm so appreciative to have connected with you as well as the rest of the gang at Social Work Twitter. We have a lot of fun on there. So on the onset, I'm going to tell your listeners, if you're not already Um, following those of us on social work Twitter, I'm going to tell you to go ahead and do so. We have a lot of fun, we laugh, as well as we speak nothing but the truth, and we are trying to move forward with inequity and injustice. So a little bit about me. Um, Yeah, my name is Hayden Dawes. I've been a practicing social worker since 2014. I've done clinical work as well as done some sort of nonprofit um, organization work. yeah, but I've been a practicing social worker since 2014. I've done a lot of clinical practice working with different populations, adults, veterans. I've done private practice. Um, I'm really passionate about the work, but currently I am a PhD student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I look at Mental health inequities and disparities among people of color and LGBTQIA plus folks, and especially people that live at those intersections. Um, I'm really committed to seeing how we can create more equitable, affirming mental health systems for those populations.
2: Well, first, I I usually wait until the end to give folks their flowers, but I mean, I I just want to one thank you for the work that you're doing because in many cases I feel like we're not centering the voices of those who live at the intersections. And what we see is now like these like bifurcated systems where people don't get exactly what they need because they only see part of the person. Mm. And so I, I'm grateful for you, you know, one, your research doing that and you living your truth in that way. Like it's like you're going to get all of me. This is the research that I do. This is how I show up.
1: Yeah, I mean, something that I talk about and think about a lot is how siloed we are in terms of splitting parts of people rather than looking at them holistically. Even from the very way that we frame our research questions as well as our interventions, we're always sort of looking at, well, what's the way in which we can be the most focused in looking at this problem? You know, Unfortunately, that that leaves us not to see people holistically. And when we're talking about people's identities, I mean that's core to who they are. That's also a major focus ha- as to how other people may view them and what other biases they might come with. So, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, that's also the, the intersection that I live at. So, of course, I'm going to come with my own positionality when it comes to moving this work forward. Sure, sure.
2: So let's kick this off right so let's talk about the research and what we see in the discourse so research tells us that lgbtq plus individuals are at an increased risk of adverse health outcomes and there's there's a gamut that typically show up what are some of the conditions where these disparities exist
1: yeah i mean they exist on sort of multiple levels i mean first sort of on that what what The individual experiences is you're talking about increased risk for bullying, as well as being experiencing violence, both in the home from people that are within someone's family, as well as the the larger society, you're going to have tons of um, internalized oppression that exists within the person. And of course that's gonna lead and it's been connected to depression, anxiety, as well as someone really failing to sort of live up to their fullest potential. And then when we look at the structural level, I mean, you can see in healthcare, the ways in which historically, you know, LGBTQI people have been discriminated against and, and judged in terms of, like, even for for instance, not being able to donate blood if you're a, a man who's had sex with men, and, you know, there's there's a, a whole host of things in terms of stigma, as well as structural inequities that continue to really leave this population behind. And so
2: I, I feel like you're, You've mentioned it, and I just want to call it out a little bit more explicitly, what are some of those risk factors for LGBTQ health? So I, I hear stigma, discrimination,
1: just marginalization across a
2: variety mm-hmm. of spaces. Are there others that we're missing?
1: Yeah, I mean, thinking about in terms of employment and employment safety, for instance, I mean, we understand as as Americans, as part of our national identity, that being able to have a job and, and hold a, a stable employment is really important to people's life outcomes. Well there's no protection currently on the books for people that are and I'm going to use the umbrella term queer. And so if people are going in anxious about their work and whether they're going to be able to maintain it in order to be their full selves, that leaves them far behind. And so of course along with that you're thinking about insurance gaps that really makes it difficult for people to access healthcare in a way that's holistic to all of their needs because a lot of the healthcare is gonna be, of course, through um, employment status.
2: And I imagine thinking, I tend to now think of life as BC and AC, so before COVID and after COVID, I would imagine with COVID-19, we saw those gaps get even widened or more widened When it comes to employment, as far as, you know, individuals being able to have access to care, like, I know this is slightly off topic, but did you notice any of that maybe in your own research or just things you came across so that it's just
1: broadened? Yeah, I haven't seen any data specifically on that. Um, I'd have to go back and look, but I can imagine, especially for people that are already lower income and lower SES status, because we do, of course, have outliers in the gay community where particularly like gay white men are going to be well employed generally in good positions. But when we're talking about people of color who are also sexual and gender minorities, you know, they're going to face more barriers um, on top of. What they already do hold.
2: And you know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for root causes. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into stigma and discrimination and how mm-hmm. they play a role in perpetuating inequities. Could you kind of unpack that or, or tell that picture, tell that story for
1: us? Sure. So imagine you're someone that you were assigned female at birth. And yet you you already, and, and what that means, you, you, you already kind of feel a little bit more masculine. And so you present with more masculine clothes and people are asking questions about you. They don't get it. Your family doesn't get it. You don't have anywhere to go that you can feel safe to be your full self. And so you have a whole host of messages that are in your head, as well as, you know, some people might say somatically are in your body. And so when it comes to Looking towards employment, or even going to see a healthcare provider, you're worried about how you might be judged, and and furthermore, we have to think about how d- there's differential access depending on where your geographic location that you might be living. We know that people that live in urban settings have um, much better access to healthcare, and you're going to find much more a much closer access to the queer community, somewhere where you might be seen and held. And so stigma will cause people to sort of collapse within themselves, and it will bar them from accessing resources that might actually assist them with, with living their fuller life.
2: I'm glad you introduced the, the healthcare space, because I know this is kind of how we're centering the conversation Let's get very uh, interpersonal for a second. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm curious as to what role do providers play in perpetuating harm in this space?
1: Yeah, I think even not being asked who you are and not having sort of a plethora of gender pronouns, as well as knowing that someone may have a partner that that doesn't match the assumption that you have at home. And so the biases are in the room between the provider and the patient, or in my case, what I think about a lot is the provider and the therapist. And so we, we, the therapist, the provider can make a whole host of assumptions about who this person is, and that's key clinical information. And so we have to understand there's specific screening criteria that might look different in terms of healthcare needs. You may need to know about such things such as PrEP, which, you know, which is a preventative um, medicine for HIV. And so That's why it's so crucial to when you meet anybody to to not make assumptions about who they might be, to so that you are ensuring that you're asking questions and you're taking time to have a full diagnostic picture of who this person might be.
2: And so how do we do that? Right. I'm thinking about. What do they say that the average doctor's visit now is what, about eight minutes? Mm-hmm. and so getting a better sense of how to interact with people especially people different than the the majority how do we disrupt the the traditional clinical model
1: that's a great question james i mean in so many ways we're 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 driven for efficiency not necessarily effectiveness um and i think you know some of the subtle ways in which you can do that is my mind is to make sure that one's questionnaires and their intake forms really highlight that people are going to feel, people should be able to feel comfortable within your clinical space. And one of the things that we didn't talk about is that the verbiage and the language and the terminology that people use are signals to specifically people in the queer community, whether they're going to be safe there or not i mean you know as you know as a black man that we're we're always scanning for is this place safe yes or no and Above and beyond that, when you're a sexual and gender minority, you're also doing the the very same thing. And I would say if you're a person of color and um, queer, you're you're definitely doing it. You want to know, can I be my whole self with this person? Can I be my whole self in this clinic? So what are the signs and symbols that folks have? And of course, you know, people might argue that it's performative to sort of have a triangle rainbow um, or to have a trans flag within a waiting room. But those are subtle things that I think one can do um, to ensure that that patients know that you're there to assist them with all of their healthcare needs.
2: And it's amazing the the subtlety, right? Like things that you are aware of based on your position, right? Like the the spaces that you're occupying, you you see those things. And I would even say, as a cisgender male. When I go into the doctor's office, I, I don't even notice those things right off back. I mean, I, I have plenty of acquaintances who identify as LGBTQ, all of, all actually. And I still find myself learning on a regular basis. Like these are the things that you need to be aware of in mm-hmm. these different spaces. Mm-hmm. And I think we could go down like the ally conversation at another point, but to be able to support people who are representing minoritized identities Those are the type of things that you need to be aware of.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing is recognizing that no one has arrived. I mean, I have to do my work around, you know, stuff that's even happening within my own community and making sure that I have people that I can consult with. I, I really believe strongly in that. You know, for instance, when I was doing clinical practice regularly and I was working with trans patients. You know, I made sure that I had a few trans colleagues that I could call and ask for consultation to assist me in sort of thinking through things more thoroughly. And I think, unfortunately, our healthcare system and and also our culture, we think we have to have all the answers and But what I love the most about community, and this is one of the things I actually like about being a minoritized person, is that I know that I'm going to thrive more by calling on folks and asking for help. It is hard to ask for help, James, believe me. I know. But I think that is one of the ways in which we can start disrupting the dominant forces that are out there in our culture.
2: I think I've gotten better with asking for help or more clearly saying that I don't know. I Mm -hmm. think there's this innate pressure that comes with um, various privileges where you're just like, I have to know the answer. Mm. And I've gotten to a space now where I'm like, hey, I don't know, but I do know somebody who might, and let's invite them to the conversation.
1: Right, right.
2: So going back to this notion of the, the doctor's office, right? I think this is just gonna be our, our backdrop for today. Why do we see a shortage of LGBTQ healthcare providers? Like I, I, we often talk about this uh, racial concordance, right? Like having the same racial identity as your, your doctor but I imagine there's greater gaps when it comes to one's gender identity or sexual orientation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the latest Gallup poll, I think like 4% of the population um, identifies within sort of the larger queer community. And so that's gonna even be even fewer folks that are even eligible to be, or even in the pipeline to be a medical professional. And so number I mean, I think the first kind of more obvious thing is like there's a fewer number and yet we still don't even know because there's a lot of people that due to internalized depression, um, or due to safety reasons even aren't comfortable in disclosing or even coming out to themselves in terms of their identity. So those that's one of the reasons. The other reason is, you know, we're not actively recruiting. I mean, we have to think a, a lot of, especially physicians, I mean, oftentimes their parents were physicians. So, you know, I would even say, what are the ways in which even K through 12 education and then later the bachelor level really might disincentivize someone that is queer in, in terms of going further with a medical um, degree. And yet I think it's it's super important. And, you know, I think there's some wonderful leaders in that space, especially on Twitter, so that they there is more visibility and there is more representation. Um, oftentimes you don't know what you can become until you see someone that looks like you doing it. Uh,
2: uh-huh. Could you speak to how that plays out? In treatment, right? So back to the idea of concordance. If you don't understand what it's like for me to navigate in these certain spaces or um, don't know where I navigate, how does that show up when individuals are providing and I think you could even go, you know, medical or behavioral treatment?
1: Yeah, I think it's a little bit I think with medical treatment, I mean there's a distinction in that if your stomach is really like really bad. Like you're just like, Oh my God, my stomach really hurts. You're just going to go because you're feeling that pain in an acute way. And you're just going to get the help that you need. I think with behavioral health, I've noticed at least that people are a lot um, more specific in terms of wanting to be matched and having a goodness of fit for whatever they're experiencing. And I think Historically, LGBTQ people generally end up moving to places that might be known as a kind of a safer haven for folks with that identity. One of the things I love about being a part of this community, and I've seen even in my own research, is that oftentimes people will find behavioral health, even sometimes healthcare providers, through peer recommendations within the community itself. And so even if someone may not necessarily be, the physician may not be sort of LGBTQ, people will know like, oh, well, they're queer they're friendly. There's they're someone that you can speak to that they're helping me with this, they're helping me with that. Um, that is definitely something I've noticed.
2: And I think you, you touched on this as far as like recommendations from peers. Are there other recommendations for individuals looking to find the right provider And I know there's like this whole awakening right now um, that I've noticed like on Instagram and just social media in general, where people are really talking about like, hey, I've got a therapist and people are like, those, the likes that I see on those posts are like astronomical.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Have you seen any other, I don't want to call them uh, best practices that you could apply here?
1: Yeah, I think. There are some best practices. And I think it takes a while to maybe to find a fit. Although some people will find a provider once and really, really, really appreciate them. And there are some mixed findings from the research that I sort of think about a, a little bit that If the match in terms of your identities is not that most important of a factor to you, it actually can work if you have sort of a cross-racial or a cross-sexual orientation um, identity. What's most important is whether you find a provider that has the cultural humility to know what they don't know while simultaneously not pressuring you to educate them on your community. So what I mean by that is, if, if it's really important for you to find someone that is also, well, actually, let me let me tell you a story. So when I was in practice, sometimes I would meet with people that would say, Hayden, I had to meet with a person of color. I might be gay, but I had to meet with a person of color, period. And I'm like, okay. And then there was other people that like, no, someone being gay was most important to me. So there's different identity factors that might be higher up than others. And so that's something that people might want to wade through. Um, Definitely looking online, definitely looking through peer recommendations. And then once you're in the office, get a good feel for it. Is this, does this seem like somewhere that I would want to come back to maybe weekly or every other week? Does it have a good feel? Mm, Not so sure. Like I'm going to check in about this later and check it out the next time. Some people say to give it at least three sessions or so before you're like you know what this is a good fit because some of us are a little bit finicky and we'll just be like nah this is not gonna work and you've done that three and four and five times and it's like "Mm," but you may want to just really slow down and try it out first before you just go ahead and say no um oh you must be talking about me now (laughs) oh james do we need to talk about that uh perhaps
2: well we'll take it offline (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, but it, it, it because, you know, I don't want to go into a whole sort of tangent about attachment, but for some of us, it might take longer to kind of warm up to a person. And that's okay. We just need to recognize that's our inclination that we're going to go into relationships with, and we have to work with it. And that means we have to really try it out for three or maybe even five sessions before we're like, no, this is not going to work. Because that's just being avoidant, really. Sorry about it. Uh,
2: You just read me. (laughs) (laughs) It's all in love. Yeah, I know. I know. And I'm, I'm definitely one of those people who's like, oh, you know, they don't remind me of a previous therapist or they remind me too much of a previous therapist. But no, this, this episode clearly isn't about me. But some of the lessons definitely apply.
1: Well, trust and believe you're not alone. I remember I had been, I was ending when, what, with one therapist and going to another one. And I was comparing that therapist. It was so bad. It didn't work out. It was like two sessions. I was like, this is... Mm-mm. Because it was just, it was too in my head, the the comparison. And, you know, ultimately, I don't think it was a good fit for me and ended up going with someone else. But yeah, it's, it's, it can be really tricky. I mean, you're going to open yourself up to this person and you want to, you know, test it out and see if it's safe, but you have to give yourself some time to figure that out.
2: Right on, right on.
1: Cause Cause some people have a- the obvious problem i'm sorry some people have the obvious problem and they fall in love with the first person they see and it's like well you may want to you know <laughs>
2: i wish i had that level of like acceptance <laughs> i i i think i just approach most providers with this degree of skepticism like why do you want to see me unless <laughs> of uh why do I want to see you
1: well, you're right, but you're not you're not alone with that and you know, and I want to say that it's I don't necessarily think it's acceptance, I think it's a lack of discernment sometimes o discernment yeah, okay. like it how do you know if this person's really safe for you? It sounds like maybe you don't have the tools or haven't developed them to 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 see not everyone's your friend right,
2: right. Your there. For- isn't your friend anyway, or I mean, even your doctor? I know, like, I think about my experience with my pediatrician, who I like loved, right? Like, mm-hmm. as you're growing up, and they just like there for you. And then when I got older and had like my general practitioner, I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really know if this is gonna work long term. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. where I live is, it's not small, but there's not a lot of black providers. And I think my only black Provider was at one point was my dermatologist and she passed, right? Like she was able Mm -hmm. to talk to me about like skin issues and Mm -hmm. we just built a a great relationship. But being able to have conversations like I've mentioned on previous episodes about um going to see a cardiologist, and he was just kind of like, Why are you here? (laughs) I'm like, um, I'm a black man in the middle of like a racial crisis," and my heart hurts like i just i just want to be able to say that somewhere and someone's like yep i get it and you're just like you're you're too young to be here like okay
1: i mean do do you not know the data of your own field about the disparities of black men in heart attacks probably not but like okay so anyways going back to what i was saying let me clarify (laughs) i don't i don't mean that your therapist is your friend i'm just saying some people walk around the world and think everyone's their friend and lack the, the discernment yeah Want to clarify that
2: we're on the same page, but I appreciate the the clarity just in case someone messages me, like, Hey, this is all my therapists are my friends. (laughs) "Mm." (laughs) So, my next question is a bit twofold, right? And I want to know how do we go about creating a more inclusive future, not just for um, people seeking treatment, but also people looking to be the professional?
1: What a good question. I
2: take a lot of time to massage these questions. I mean, I, I take it real serious.
1: That is a good question. I don't know, like the word community keeps coming up for me. I, I think, well, I mean, I think our incentives in behavioral health treatment are, are have to be really questioned. I mean, it, because there's like a few different populations. You have people in community and mental health who really have different needs um, some of them are, are, I hate to put it this way, are really just trying to struggle with the challenges of poverty. And it's like, what are we treating behaviorally? What, I mean, what? Like, we need to figure out sort of the more macroeconomic issues that are, continue to, to put people in poverty. Um, that's one piece. The other thing is, in terms of for lack of a better term worried well you know I, I i think what's going on right now is really important in destigmatizing mental health and i think one of the unintended positive consequences of covid it's like everyone knows everyone's having a mental health thing right now it may not be full criteria diagnostic you know (laughs) but who isn't going through something I remember today I was listening and they were talking about COVID related insomnia Mm. and the prevalence of it and so many people's sleep patterns are being disrupted the boundaries between work and home are being disrupted um So in terms of how do we make, how do we improve that? I don't, I don't know. There there are big visions that we can really transform this if we look at things radically differently in terms of supporting one another more holistically. I definitely think corporate spaces are doing a better job of talking about it, thinking about it. Um, Educational spaces are doing a better job about it. Because you know, one of the things I think about is that there is a real shortage of mental health providers. Period. Regardless of identity, um, and so that's really troubling as we look ahead and think about the immense suffering that we've all endured due to racism and COVID nineteen. It's it, it's really crippling, and so we have to think about how do we scale up what's already working and what's already going well. Um, because I don't know, I, I I see real opportunities if folks are ready to lean into it through, with group treatment. Um, Unfortunately, it's not talked about as much and yet the, the evidence says it's, it's efficacious, if not even more efficacious than one-on-one therapy. But I think that's one small way that I think we can do a better job of creating a better environment. Now, in terms of the how inclusive that space is, that I think is a different sort of question. Um, but first we need to bring people into treatment and find ways to both pay providers, what they need to be paid, um, as well as to ensure that people are getting sort of good treatment as well.
2: The, the timeliness of, of this discussion, right? So I took the day off today because I couldn't sleep last night like my sleep was just all fractured and I could hear kids making random noises in the middle of the night and so still being like helicopter bed I'm like mm-hmm. do I need to get up or do I just stay here wait until they scream again and I took the day off just trying to like I'm just gonna lay on the couch and relax and take it easy but I never took the time to think about how COVID plays a role in that because I, I'm also uh remote employee now, like I went from being in the office every day to now I'm at home every day. And obviously lives have been disrupted in that in that manner. But I think we have, as you mentioned, an opportunity in whatever we want to call the new normal to really get things right. And you also brought up another point that I saw that I think it was a meme where they said, you know, what if the way to beat COVID-19 was to eradicate poverty? Because, I mean, what, we're, what, 19, 20 months into this thing now, and no signs of slowing down, we've got new variants, and what if we actually built out our social uh, safety net and the infrastructure to make sure people have what they need to thrive, to, mm-hmm. to survive even? Like, what if that's the key? Like, what if that was, like, the antidote this whole
1: time? yeah and I, I love so much of what you're saying and and of course you know coming onto podcast you know you i have the idea like oh i'm supposed to be the expert and have all the answers right but that's not that's not it i think we develop relationship and community so that we could collectively envision something different so i love what you're saying because this is an opportunity to really strategize and create and to form and to shape things differently and the question is do we have the individual and the collective will to see the vision forward magical question
2: i mean we have a blank slate essentially right or we at least have new tools to to repaint the picture
1: mm. new tool, say more
2: so thinking about the ways that we've been able to leverage technology that we haven't before. And I I think about the ability to be connected in ways that we weren't prior to the pandemic. And so I'm totally tapping into my my Michael right now, being able to connect with people outside of our usual space. So thinking about therapy in particular. Who's to say that I have to limit myself to who is in like the county area now Mm -hmm. like I can go to find a directory and say oh my god I found another black therapist who specializes in um, trauma who is also familiar with urban settings and who has you know a background in x and like meets my ridiculous checklist Mm -hmm. to (laughs) say oh my god I could actually talk to this person potentially and so, thinking about the things that we had prior, we now have new tools. I don't, I don't want to necessarily say we have a blank slate because that erases the, the the experience for so many thus far. But now we can take advantage of some of these resources that we have.
1: Yeah, I really like what you're saying about that, and I can't believe Michael Fulweiler is coming up right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's a great guy. Him and Jesse um, are my Twitter buds um, for sure. And I have to definitely give them a shout out and follow them if you're not already. Um, but no, I think you're right to how do we leverage this technology in a way that meets more people's needs? Um, and and, you know, social isolation was already sort of a, a big public health issues that was being discussed. Um, Something that we're not talking about right now, but especially as people get older and aging. Um, So how do we use technology to ensure that people are getting the socialization that they need? They're forming the relationships that really are going to make the difference. I mean, we know if people are, are socially isolated that they have a whole host of adverse health outcomes. I want
2: to turn the corner a bit, right? So mm-hmm. I want to talk about you specifically. And I want to know more about your role in disrupting this broader problem of inequity.
1: Who? what a good question. This is like a, a deep envisioning question. You know, I think what is my role in disrupting, wow. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a student I'm a practitioner, I'm a researcher. I think I'm still discovering how I'm putting all those pieces together, James. Um, I've leaned into becoming a public figure or a public intellectual because it's something that I feel like I'm good at and people say they want more of it. And so It's like seeing a mirage on a desert and like getting glimpses of like what I think my role is. I might be already doing so much of it that I'm not even noticing that I'm doing it. You know, I like to talk about compassion and and radical permission and collective liberation. And I like to hold those big ideas. I know that community is important to me. I know that calling out the injustices, but not in a way that's supposed to be shaming or blaming. But naming it so that we can just do better and move forward. This is we have all inherited these jacked up, messed up, immoral. I might even say evil, disgusting, terrible systems of oppression. They are stifling. It, it feels like a straitjacket sometimes to be um, who we might who we might be. And yet I do believe that we can actually move past it if we're willing to go through the work, do the work and go through it. Like we can do it. Um, so sometimes I think that's my role is to just sort of name it and to be really honest with where I might be because there's some days where I'm like, to heck with this. I don't think this is getting better y'all. But then the other side of me is like, what other choice do I have? Like I'm not dead yet.
2: Oh, that's real. And it's interesting because I, I definitely look at you as a as a public intellectual. I mean, I, I would even dare say social work, Twitter influencer and influencer in general um, because I, I don't find myself in that space. Even being a podcast host, I, I don't lean in, in in that way. I think I often begrudgingly get pulled into conversations, but mm. i typically like in the background and Like, I I think of myself as the active bystander, if need be.
1: James, I think that's part of, well, from me to you, I think it's your hesitancy of being seen. Ooh. Now we're getting deep on (laughs) my no, Well, I mean, honestly, it's, I get a lot of attention and sometimes I feel really uncomfortable with it. And sometimes my job to bring the work forward is to allow it to happen. Mm-hmm. The work is not served by me having my hands out, trying to stop the water from flowing. Like, no, just let it flow. Because you're, you're, you have, we both have platforms that we're using. And it's something, it's not everything. I think that's the other thing I, I try to stay really sort of humble with it it's something it's not everything I'm glad I'm doing what I'm doing and I think what you're kind of bringing up it's something that I ask myself is like am I doing enough I ask myself the same question so you're not alone with that well I remember I was watching um like Super Soul Sunday with Oprah and she was up there with a nun and the nun was talking about like this is the time period where there's so much change and talking about the climate and the earth and, like, talk about an existential, like, (laughs) this ain't good kind of situation. (laughs) And Oprah was like, you know what? After this interview, like, I need to do more. And I'm thinking, wait, what? Oprah is over here questioning whether she's doing enough? And here I am, honey, (laughs) there is nowhere close the oprah and here i am with nowhere close to the oprah money nor influence and i'm like if she's if she's questioning that i i'm just like i wonder if the obamas are questioning that like i want to mm. uh, seriously i wonder if big pivotal figures are always questioning are they doing enough and honestly i could see the ones that have just a, enough humility would be so, James, I don't think there's going to be a day where we're going to be like, we're doing enough. No, I I I don't think so. I think we have been socialized within our profession so much that we're not going to feel as if we are. But here's the thing that I I think we was what's really important. Just because we don't feel like we're doing enough doesn't mean that we're not enough. Mm, mic drop just because we feel like we're not doing enough doesn't mean that we're not enough.
2: I feel like I should just end the episode, right? Like to hell with the last few questions. No, no, I totally agree. I think we've just been, as you said, socialized to believe that there's always more, right? We have to do more. Like we have to contribute more to, to the discourse. We have to put ourselves out there in a different way or we have to stand out from everybody else when like you said it's all about contributing in, in our way mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and our unique way of your unique light your you know your unique goodness I mean I can tell when I'm, I'm in a bad space on social media is when my ego is running and I'm like chasing likes and chasing influence. And it's like, it's so performative. It feels gross. But I, I know that part of myself. When the truth is, when I'm most enjoying it, that's when it's like, I feel the flow. And it's just for the love of it, for the love of the world, for the love of others, for the love of myself. I mean, I like to be in that space, James.
2: Mm-hmm. same same yeah one day i'll, I'll open up about uh kind of podcasting behind the scenes and like the social media side i've mentioned it in the past like it's my least favorite pieces like you know mm-hmm. i enjoy the, the design of content like i really enjoy that stuff which i never thought i would but you know tracking analytics and you know making sure things are getting likes or posted at the right time like that's where i'm kind of like Ugh. I don't like the speed, and I like being actually a bit removed from it. So at this point, like I don't need a schedule, but like I don't post the content in real time anymore. So it's all scheduled. And so it's like, I'm able to put a barrier between myself and when it goes out, like I might not check it until later in the night. Like, Oh, I'm not like constantly checking to make sure like, Oh, it's getting like It's getting light. Because that, that it weighs on you. And I, mm-hmm. I like hate mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, sometimes it's kind of hacking ourselves and knowing what's right for us and when and when it's not right for us and when to find some other tools, like, you know, scheduling tool or hiring someone if you can afford it to do it for you. Yeah, it's really important.
2: One day I'm going to have a sponsorship or so I will have someone that can take over this stuff. That would be great. Manifestation, Hayden.
1: Well, absolutely, James. And I'm going to come after you again. But you have to be open enough to know that you you can actually receive such a thing. Cause that's something I'm working on in me. I'm not just attacking you. I mean, I I'm now thinking through as a as a black creative, how do I accept myself to receive Oprah money? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh what do I need to let go of what do I need to allow to have happen to receive such a thing because trust and believe I know about some self-sabotage okay oh yeah that
2: imposter syndrome will make you sick I'll, I'll leave it at that yeah we don't have to go any further with it okay so let's talk about something that, that is important right Tell us about Radical Permission. Where did the idea come from? Why are you doing it?
1: Great, great question. And if I forget one of those pieces of it, just elevate it and I'll go into it. So back in 2018, um, I had a friend from high school. I mean, we weren't even that close. She was sharing on her Instagram a haiku a day for a hundred days. And I said to myself, like, there is no way I'm doing a haiku. I am not counting those syllables. I'm just not doing it. <laughs> but what I could do, because, you know, kind of elevating Brene Brown's work in Rising Strong of like one of the integration skills is to write a permission slip to yourself. Like today, I give myself permission to say no. Today, I give myself permission to have that hard conversation. And I said, hmm, what would it be like if i treated this as a hundred day practice and i would write a permission slip to myself for a hundred days and i'll share it on instagram and at this point it was private and i'll do it for i'll do it on there so that people can see and so i did and then friends of mine would like it and they were like oh hey that's super helpful for me like You know, I would say today, give myself permission to slow down and to practice gratitude. You know, today I give myself permission to walk around with Janet Jackson, Rhythm Nation, um, energy, um, just anything that I needed for my day and something that I could offer myself. And so that was done and it came and I enjoyed it and I had some reflection about it. And then I started talking to um, a marketing person to help me sort of bring things up the next level. This is like a few years later. She said, Hayden, you know, I really think these permission slips are really cool. I think they could kind of set you apart when you're talking about Instagram. And I'm like, are you sure girl? And at that time people were like all about the grid. The grid has to be beautiful. And she's like, you could do like a permission slip every other post. So it could form like, you know, like a checkered pattern. I said, okay. Sure, okay, whatever. Didn't think much of it. I started doing it a little bit, just a tiny bit. Well, what happened was, I think COVID happened, and I recognized, like, I felt like my life was getting smaller. I felt like the world was getting smaller. It was so erratic. I didn't know what to orient to. I was having conversations with my therapist and my friends about, leaning into what autonomy that we did have, you know, things might be kind of hazy. We don't know what's going on, but I'm able to make some choices. And so I said, okay, well, what if I did a permission slip practice, but this time, what if I opened it to everyone else and said, why don't you join me in this collective practice and we'll do it for 14 days? So I did. And I was astounded by how many people were thankful participated tagged me liked mine and also just really dug in I mean it's really powerful people are like I didn't even know I could ask, I could give myself permission to do these things I said wow and so I feel like radical permission is like on my lap I'm the custodian of it I call myself the curator of it and When we think about creating a bigger and better world, one of the things that I think gets in the way is our own egos, our own stuff, our own garbage. And so what would it be like if we just said, you know what, I can give myself permission to get out of the way of that garbage or throw that garbage away to make that bigger and better world happen. And so if we're thinking about increasing people's courage or willingness to take on risk, I think a permission slip is one of the ways in which we do it. I definitely envision it as it's a collective practice. I'm not doing this alone. There are other people writing permission slips along with me. Um, and so that's why it's important for me to be a role model in that and to share on Instagram as well as Twitter, my permission slips. And I get I get so many messages from people thanking me. It's just a reminder, like even if they don't, it doesn't make it onto social. I know people pause in their day and check in with themselves and then maybe write themselves a permission slip and then move forward accordingly.
2: i will gladly admit that I've written a few now ever since the year post.
1: I, James, this is the first time I've heard this. I'm beaming right now.
2: Yep. Yep. I don't think I've ever posted them, but I, I definitely write them down now.
1: Oh, and wow. I, I recently
2: started doing um, affirmations also, mm-hmm. like starting like on a weekly basis because my wife does them with the kids. And like, before drop-off in the morning, Jaden will say, oh, you know, I am smart. I am confident. I am safe. And I'm like, I want to do that, too. And here I am feeling something that for a five-year-old, but it's
1: like, no, nah, I need that. Absolutely. We're not that different than five-year-olds.
2: We're I not. I mean, <laughs> I I
1: mean we, we all have our inner child that needs to be listened to and heard and allowed to sometimes take risks. You know, and I think, you know, I'll give you so one of the more powerful permission slips that I did back when um, Amad Aubrey and Brianna Taylor and um, I don't even remember old girl's name in New York at the Central Park. I can't even get into it, <laughs> but I wrote myself a permission slip. Like I give myself permission to be angry and assert my humanity in such dehumanization something to that effect because anger was something that I hadn't given myself permission all the time to really kind of like get into and really allow to wash over me and it was like a week or so later I wrote um an invitation to white therapists and it went viral and it essentially was calling out and calling in behavioral health because I knew that what was gonna happen was they were gonna make this argument all about police brutality. And I'm like, listen here now, y'all, we got issues. When we're diagnosing folks, you're not thinking about their identity. You're not thinking about racial trauma. No, you're just slapping them with a DSM diagnosis and you're going about your business. But we need to look at the fuller context of what it means to be a person of color in America. And so, James, I don't think I would have had the courage to really lean in had I not written that permission slip to myself.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh So, Hayden, I realized like we've been chatting now for close to an hour, and I think this is the first time we've ever like communicated in real life, like aside from Twitter. And Mm -hmm. like, I feel like I could talk for a a lot longer, (laughs) but I realized, like, you had a long day. Mm -hmm. I've had what was supposed to be a shorter day, but it wasn't. I want to make sure that you have time to rest because we realize that's key. How do people keep up with you if people want to learn how to write their own permission slips or if they want to read an invitation to white therapists? Where do they go?
1: Yeah, so you can go to my website, um, com. Um, you can find a link to an invitation to white therapists that was published on medium Um, as well as you can see sort of like a starter guide to um, radical permission Um, as well as you can follow me on instagram at hc dawes you can also follow me at hc dawes on twitter and i'm also a linkedin user even though it doesn't have as much activity you can just um, search my name and find me that way, and the other thing that I would encourage everyone to do is to sign up for my once a month newsletter, um, I always have a monthly refl- reflection, um, James Bell was also featured as one of my community partners, um, I also like to elevate other folks that are doing great work in the world. Um, So please sign up for the newsletter and that way you can hear about trainings that are coming up appearances um, as well as anything else that might be interesting that comes out of my mouth. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Anything else you want to leave the people with Hayden?
1: Um, I want to leave the people with every Tuesday. Tuesdays are a very special day because Tuesdays where we give ourselves permission to be petty. It is petty Tuesday. So yes we know taco tuesday is a thing but petty tuesday to me is a richer more important holiday.
2: (laughs) i might even shift my release calendar just for you and drop your episode on a tuesday instead of a wednesday i'd love it yeah i'll do that it's gonna throw off all my counts and numbers my grid's gonna be messed up but it's cool it's cool (laughs) You
1: don't to have, to, it do out. <laughs> you have
2: no, to do that. No, I'm
1: kidding. I'm kidding. But I am gonna drop it on Tuesday
2: in honor of such a important holiday.
1: You know. I James, I did not see Petty Tuesday coming. And it's honestly, it feels like the most vulnerable thing I do sometimes because I'm like, Y'all really wanna see all that? And they're like, Yeah, we want it.
2: <laughs> Give us what we want. <laughs> all right. Well, Hayden, definitely appreciate you hopping on the pod. I and I realized like the episodes that tend to get a lot more traction are ones that go off the outline. Like I realized we covered the things there, but I felt like our conversation was so much more than the podcast. And so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as I said in the beginning, definitely grateful to you for hopping on, also for the work that you're doing and um, for staying on my head about the website that I have yet to complete.
1: Well, like I said, James, you were scared about being seen. That's the issue. You're already doing the work. James, let me ask you this question: Do you consider yourself to be an activist? No. No. Okay. Mm-mm.
2: okay. Do I see myself to be an advocate? Yeah. Activist? No.
1: Why not? Oh, let's see if
2: I'm going to keep this in there. I'm going to edit it out. Um, I think it goes to what I believe an activist looks like: someone who's out there. Um, definitely front and center in the work. Me, I like to supply people with the information that they need to make the most informed decision. Like I don't typically, there isn't one topic that moves me enough to where I'm like, this is my cause. Usually for me, it's, it's about the equity in the situation. Like what are the barriers, who's being considered, who's not, who's being excluded. Like I wanna be able to pick those pieces apart, less of like one issue that that drives me.
1: And that's picking out pieces and naming them and looking at it and thinking about strategy as to fill that gap. That's not activism.
2: No, I see that as advocacy. Okay. But maybe we'll, we'll put that on another. I don't know. I'm curious.
1: I'm curious. No, I'm really curious because I I asked people, I'm like, do you all see me as an activist? And they were like, yeah. And to me, it was like, I don't know. I don't know if you have a particular framework that you think of, of activism versus advocacy but for me it's like it kind of goes back to like a change agent because I don't see myself necessarily as an activist yet other folks see me that way and so identity is real elusive um and it's interesting because we may not see ourselves in the ways in which others see us of course not but yeah
2: um now you got me thinking I'm about to make a twitter poll
1: I was I'm actually gonna put on twitter too
2: (laughs) (laughs) okay well, thank you, Hayden. You thank please you. Enjoy your evening. This was great. Um, Appreciate
1: you, sir. Um,
0: I have to admit that I'm always uh, amazed and fascinated how timeless these episodes become. And this comes to mind. One, I've been reading uh, The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. If you've never read it, please do. Black, dystopian, Afrofuturistic film. And there's lines in there that literally show up in the ways that we're experiencing life now. (laughs) And there's a part in there where they're talking about uh, make America great again. And this is like in 2030. Right. And I don't even know when this book was written. The timelessness of it is just infatuating to me. And with today's episode, again, I couldn't tell you when this episode was recorded. It was recorded in 2021. Naturally. But what is interesting to me is how things show up again. And at that time, I was going through just life, right? And I would say that I'm I'm going through life right now because life be lifing. And I've recently started seeing a therapist, which took me a really long time to appreciate. And it's interesting because so many of my colleagues, people that I call friends, our therapists they're clinicians and I would make offhanded comments that were self-deprecating and they say you know well let's unpack that and let me slow slow it down slow it down but it became to a point where I, I actually started to feel those things and they they stuck with me and I wanted to make sure that I, I had a space where I could unpack some of those feelings and experiences that I've had and encountered and so as we were talking in today's episode about Finding the, the, the quote unquote perfect therapist or alignment with your therapist is so important. And so one shout out to mine for holding me down because I know when I get in session, it's no hose bar, But I, I appreciate you. But also it just shows goes to show the, the value of finding that racial alignment and racial concordance. If that's important to you, having someone that you can talk to. So. Shout out to Hayden for for elevating today's conversation. I know we jumped around quite a bit, but I I really take with me the evolution of the, the social work profession, the evolution of medical care and the way that we perceive and understand intersectionality is important. And being able to speak to the different facets of one's identity is key. If we actually want to achieve holistic care, there, there's no way to be whole if we're not addressing the pieces. So I'm just going to leave that there. Thanks again, Hayden, for, for following through a few really quick updates. Um, first things first. I owe you all a mixtape. And I've gotten a few questions about it. Um, So, James, you know, you're going to be rapping on I Got Five. No, I'm not. I could, but I'm not. Primarily because I don't feel like making the beats or rapping over them. Maybe in the future, someone will say, hey, drop a mixtape with some bars. That's going to take a year. But next week, sometime next week, I'm going to drop it. And the way it's going to be set up, I'm going to release each episode. Track as an episode And so turn your notifications on Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast That way as soon as they start coming out You'll receive them Not gonna tell you when We're gonna shock drop it Like Nike likes to do But it's coming So stay tuned Want to give a shout out To the Brothers in Social Work Collective Because we've been busy We got some dates On the books Upcoming tour dates sold out dates y'all stay tuned i don't think we're allowed to announce yet but we've got some locations it's going down 2023 potentially 2022 we we got one that might come through we'll see we'll see but brothers and social work collective appreciate y'all brothers we uh we making it work cummings graduate institute we are wrapping up I, I know i feel like i say this every episode but it's a lot of work to build out a training We are wrapping up the Unmasking White Supremacy and Racism and Mental Health training. is two parts I mentioned before. One, diving into the, the why and kind of the history of how it came to be. And the two, second part rather, is really around what we can do now. Stay tuned. It's coming. We've got two other trainings if you're interested. Check the links in the bio. One around community engagement. The other around implicit bias. $20 well spent. You get CEUs. Why not? Check it out. And the last thing I want to just highlight really quickly is, is a, a new pet project because I tend to just keep those around because I, I enjoy creating. I enjoy putting together tools and products that are helpful for folks. And I recently decided in, in 23, I want to launch another training, which will probably fall under the Equity Matters Social Justice Academy. But I want to do an introduction to anti-racist facilitation. And this is important to me because I, as a facilitator and a trainer, I hold anti-racism as one of my values. It's a principle that I embed in my work anyway. But why not craft a full facilitation experience around anti-racism? And so stay tuned for that in 23. But now, right now, you can actually sign up for our listserv and get a copy of our ground rules for anti-racist facilitation. It's something I put together kind of on the fly just based on things that I've done in the past, but it's available, check it out, well worth it, for the free, throw that out there again. But it's a tool that I think many facilitators, trainers, educators, people who are in meetings and spaces and just need to have an understanding of how to ground conversation, how we're gonna function in the space, check it out. I mean. It's free. I think that is enough for you all. Now, I'm actually going to get ready to go record some I got five on the episodes. Actually, let me not call it. I got five on it because I'm not trying to get sued. I got five episodes. Stay tuned. We'll be in touch really soon. You already know how we leaving. Equity Matters.